We're going to be in 1 Samuel 19 and 20 tonight. You know, so. Let's. um, Let's take a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be in your word tonight. And Lord, there are some hard truths that we have to swallow. And certainly we see a lot of this in texts like uh, David pretty much for the rest of 1 Samuel. It's going to be a very rough go for him. And yet all of this happens, really, to be honest, because you called him. And David took that calling. And it is quite amazing how... It is quite amazing how... You carry us through the very hardest of times and that we never suffer without purpose. You've told us that we can even glory in our sufferings knowing that they produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope that doesn't disappoint because of the love that you've poured into our hearts through your spirit. And And I thank you that we can trust in your molding and your shaping, even if your ways for us would seem unorthodox, but for you seem pretty orthodox. And we need you, Lord, to make really clear your scriptures tonight. Not just so we know it better, but that we know you better. That's the point here. So please, have your way tonight, I pray. Comfort the, the broken, strengthen the weak, encourage the discouraged, Bring peace to the discordant. Equip, Lord, your saints. And draw us all to your feet where we belong. Please, speak peace and rest and life. We commit this time to you, Lord. Please have every moment of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Take the word for it, not mine. We are now in 1 Samuel 19, and the text now takes us to a time where everything really radically pivots. It's a rough spot. David now has, he has been, come from following the sheep to a place now where he is anointed king, but he will not assume the king of the throne, to be honest, until, for, until 2 Samuel. Uh, it'll take the death of Saul for David really to take the throne, which means that even though he is anointed chapters ago, And it's really sad. In 16, he's clearly been called king by God and by Samuel. But the guy that is king at the time has no interest in stepping off the throne. And by the way, can I say that's going to be the case in all of our lives, too? I mean, there's a point where we accepted Jesus as our savior and we really were happy to not go to hell. But he really deserves the throne of our heart. And that's a fight. That's a bigger fight. That's a much bigger fight, because to do that, it really takes the faith that is demanded of us. The faith to trust him to really change us and to really know that our life is in the best hands by putting it in his. And yet when God does that, there is more to you than just being saved. God puts a calling on your life. A calling on your life is something that he gifts you in and creates this recipe of who you are in him and the gifts that he's placed upon your life to change and impact eternity. And there are a lot of things we can do to impact the world around us for the moment. And we can, and I'm not against clothing the naked in that sense, or, or housing the homeless, or feeding the hungry, or, or administering medicine to those that are diseased around the world. And, and those things are going to happen. And by the way, they're going to happen with or without Christians. There's no doubt about it. That is no reason to step out of it. But it is important to recognize we are the only people on the planet that really represent eternity. And as we represent eternity, God puts a calling on our life to impact more than the moment. And God will, uh, will challenge us to put every moment that we can impact, even the moment, to a moment that actually impacts eternity. And so what happens is he places these tremendous gifts on our life. But understand, just because he puts a great gift on your life doesn't mean that the life is going to be easy. What we find is when God calls people, quite often they go through this time that is just a time of, in the crucible. I mean, it is a time that hurts. It's a time of chiseling away. And it's a time of burning away the dross. It is a time of pain. And a time of grieving and a time of loss because somewhere in between the swap is an empty hand. Somewhere God is pulling from our hands the stuff 
that we're holding on to that we thought was so dang awesome. And as he pulls it out somewhere and he's got something better to place in it, but we're freaking out because what we're watching is God pull from our life the stuff we know that before we actually get to see the stuff God's bringing in. And and if you think about it with someone like Abraham, for Abraham to become the father of many nations, as God had promised him, he had to leave everything that he knew, including, by the way, his family, except for his wife. And because there were children to be had, and a wife's kind of important for that. So, I mean, but he's got to leave Ur, he's got to leave all the people, his neighborhood. And the guy's 75 years old. Understand, that's a lot of life to live in a neighborhood where everybody knows you, and you know everyone, and all of this is happening, and he's got to leave all of that. To go to a time of great uncertainty, to live as a vagabond until somewhere in all of this, he's going to have to see through child after and then his son and grandson to where the nation finally becomes what we start to see. I mean, there is a time of wandering and a time of testing. And then we see Moses. And we see Moses where, if you think about it, the first 40 years of his life, he seems to live in relative luxury in Egypt, but then spends the next 40 years in the back of the desert, chasing sheep in the heat of the sand. And this is a rough time. And in the sand, you're aware of it, a lot of things die. And then after Moses brings the people out, it's the nation Israel who is going to wander around the wilderness until that old generation dies in a place where, by the way, you have this giant sandy graveyard until a new generation is going to be taken into the promised land. And that will carry us through, you realize, with someone like David, it's going to be no exception. David is called at relatively about 15 years old, and what we're going to find is he becomes king at 30, which means half of his, or actually the entirety of his life, is going to be lived on the run then from about 15. Think of yourself as about a 15-year-old kid, and the king wants to kill you, and you have to live like Jason Bourne, while the king and all of his men now are out to kill you. That's a rough thing on anyone, but a 15-year-old? And you're going to go, you know, those are kind of formative years. And from 15 to 30, to live your life running from every known governmental agency because they all want you dead. You know why? Because God put a calling on your life. Nobody was trying to kill David when he was a shepherd. No one was trying to kill David when he was writing songs out in the wilderness, you know, looking at the stars and following the sheep. But the moment that David sees the calling God placed on his life, it got really, really crazy. Then if you think about Jesus, our Savior, emerges out of obscurity, is baptized. This is his coming out party. Everybody starts to see that Jesus now, this is the person that John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But what is Jesus about to do? He adds to his 40 days of temptation. And you realize even Jesus himself would be put in the crucible. And then we think somehow God's going to place a calling on our life and it's going to be easy. Somewhere in it, there's going to be no resistance training. But we know that we bulk up most in muscle with resistance training. And the Bible teaches us that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It is not a may suffer, it is a will suffer. That means there's no exception to this. It is a required course. It's not an elective. David has been called to be king, but the king at the time has no interest to stepping off the throne. And what we see with Saul, the incumbent, is that he has a heart that is not belonging to God's. And we see David, who is a man after God's own heart. And we see the two manifest. Now with David, in the last chapter, he behaved wisely in verse 5. Verse 14, he behaved wisely. In verse 15, he behaved very wisely. And in verse 30, he behaved more wisely than all of the servants. That's where it went to. David, in his following the Lord, would behave with choices, and that's the idea of wisdom, is that his choices reflected a heart that's hungry for God's. It was clear in verse 12, it says that the Lord was with him, and verse 14, that the Lord was with him, and then in verse 28, that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David, we read there. It has become very clear to Saul that David is his replacement. Saul is a grown man, a head and shoulder taller than everyone else, and yet his replacement's a kid who's not old enough to drive. And we take us now to Psalm to First Samuel 19. Look at it with me. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to his servants that they should kill David. Now David's son is David's best. I'm sorry, Saul's son is David's best friend. We read that Jonathan, Saul's son, is David's best friend. Saul's daughter, Michal, is now David's wife. So Saul's own family. If they had to vote, if this was a democracy, would have voted for David and not for their dad. 
But Saul, now he's had enough. And please hear me, because this will be much of the tinge of the entire two chapters. Is the enemy, Jesus tells us in John 10.10, does not come to win. He does not come to intimidate. He does not come to bother or to irritate or to frustrate. That is not what he's come here to do. The enemy has come to steal. The enemy has come to kill. And the enemy has come to destroy. He is not interested in timeshare. He's not interested in some form of, uh, you know, kind of co-share or kind of co-op here. He's into complete destruction. We'll see this throughout the ministry of Jesus with the religious leaders who seek to kill Jesus. And he'll nail him on it and say, well, what bad deed do I do for which you seek to kill me? He's actually, what good deed do I do that you seek to kill me? And they say, well, you're, you have a demon. You're demon-possessed. No one's trying to kill you. And then the people say, isn't that the guy they're trying to kill? I mean, it's clear everybody seems to know that everyone wants to kill, that the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. And it's the very same thing here because the incumbents, those that have their own kingdom in mind, are certainly not interested in the kingdom of God when God steps on the throne to claim it. And so here Saul wants David dead. Now, I don't know about you, but in my calling, for the most part, it hasn't involved a lot of people wanting me dead. There's been a few that have made that clear. Uh, by God's grace, it hasn't been anyone that I really thought really had most of the wherewithal to do so. But understand this. If you seize the calling that God puts on your life, it is going to be rough for some people. And the sad part is it's going to be rough for some people you probably even respect or even love. People that you really would love to have applause from. People you'd love to have encouragement from. That now we're going to freak out and think that you're going overboard. Because all you're simply seeking to do is more than just not go to hell. But to take what God has called you to do and run with it. And that isn't easy. And even those that you love and you run with, it just doesn't mean they're going to be real hip on this. So it tells us here, though, that that Saul wants him dead. I remind you, Saul's son and daughter both love David here. Verse 2, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I'll tell you. In other words, Jonathan's saying, I'm going to suss out my dad. This is what I think I'm hearing, that my dad wants you dead. I'm going to go and feel this out to make sure it's true. And Jonathan spoke well to David, uh, well of David, to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his own life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Now, you, you get the argument. He's going, don't you realize everything David's done up to this point has blessed you. What he's done has benefited you. So why now are you having such a problem with him? You realize he's innocent. And we read in verse 6, Saul heeded the voice of his son Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now, this teaches me a couple things. One thing this teaches me is that even crazed individuals can have moments of sanity. Because this guy is clearly out of his rocker. And yet, just because you talk sense into a guy like this does not mean that the sense will stay. And can I just say it this way? Restoration with a person who is running from God's will will always be temporary. And the reason is, because when you're running from God, the only word to really define it is insanity. And you take a person who once knew God or once tasted his, at his table, who once really knew the goodness of God, and now they're running from him, and you as a Christian are trying to be reconciled to this individual, they may be reconciled for a moment, but sooner or later, God's calling on your life is going to send them off the, off the edge again. And unfortunately, this happens again and again. And of course, it's going to happen with David. 
So his son says, Dad, why are you trying to kill David? Up to this point, he's been awesome. Look at what he's done. He's, I mean, no one else, you wouldn't fight the giant, and, and David fought the giant. Aren't you glad? I mean, you were really happy when that guy went down. You were really happy when all the things that troubled your life were kind of taken down because this guy was helping you. But once you start realizing the calling that God's placed on his life, and you start to see that, you're figuring out, you, Dad, this guy's innocent. Why are you trying to kill him? Stop it, Dad. And Dad goes, wow, son, you're right. What's wrong with me? Okay, let's stop that. And we read in verse 7 that Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the presence as time passed. David has been restored. Verse 8, until the next war hits, until the next battle. When you are following the Lord, can I just warn you, one of the things that you're going to see is you have victory. And do you know how, much, how angry that takes a compromised individual? Because a person that is not walking in the surrender to God is not going to find victory. What they're going to find is that the battle is constant because the love of God and the spirit of God are constantly trying to convict them. And they're trying to stop hearing it and stop God pushing them into a deeper place with him. And they're fighting that. And then you come in and you start singing about the great victory you have. And it makes them so angry. And we read the moment the battle happens, things change. It says, verse 8, there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now, is there somebody missing from this battle in verse 8? There was, what's that? Well, Goliath is dead, so good news is he's not showing up. But there was war again, and David went out. Who is not going out? Saul. Saul's the king. Saul's the one who's supposed to be leading them to battle. Remember we said that when they started by saying we want a king, the first thing they say is that he would fight our battles. Well, Saul's certainly not fighting anyone else's battles, because truth be told, Saul's got his own battle that's disabled him from fighting anyone else's. And you watch guys like this and girls like this. Well, what happened is somewhere in all of this, they have such great advice, but they can't hear it themselves. And their counsel is so rich. But when they start denying their own counsel, guys, then they become benched because they're just not really able to help anyone else anymore because they're so overwhelmed with their own fight. And the sad part is they're fighting God. So David fights, though, and he's got victory, and he struck them, and the, the Philistines are fleeing. In verse 9 it says, A distressing spirit came upon, of, from the Lord came upon Saul and he, as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. After David has already twice now, Saul's tried to pin him to the wall twice with his spear. I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that thinks, man, you know what we really need? to remove the spear from Saul's hands. That would be my attitude. Saul should never have a spear again. And David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. This would be the third time that David now, that Saul has tried to kill him. But he slipped away from Saul's presence as, and he drove the spear into the wall. Apparently, that means that Saul threw it with conviction. And David fled and escaped that night. So also... Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, I remind you, that's Saul's daughter, told him, saying, if you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. Now stop. Are there any questions that arise in your head when you read this? There's a few for me. I mean, the first one is, where did the idol come from? The word, by the way, is teraphim. It's an idol. It's a household idol. This is Saul's house, and David's living in Saul's house. He's got Saul's daughter as his wife. Where in the world do you find an idol? Second, this idol is clearly life-size, because it's big enough so that you can throw it in a bed and someone actually thinks it's David. Now, I don't know how little David is or how big this idol is, but somewhere in all of this, this is a pretty big idol. Third, goat's hair. Do you guys get that, right? What color is goat's hair? Yeah, it can be white or brown or black, traditionally. And somewhere in it, she takes this, covers the top of it, puts the blanket over it, and we are going to think that that's David. So somewhere we have, we found a household idol, stuck this thing in the bed, covered it with covers, took goat's skin, covered it for head. I said, oh, this will do it. Why, is, why are they doing this? Because Saul is a hit on David. 
Saul is a hit on David. And David's fleeing for his life now. And I remind you, do you know why David's fleeing for his life? Because he said yes to God. But would you rather be fleeing for your life and have peace with God or be fleeing from God and try to have peace with men? Because truth be told, sometimes you're going to have to choose one. But I can tell you, the difference is you can run from man, but you can't run from God. No matter how deserted the island, it's not so deserted, God won't be there. So it says then, verse 14, So when Saul sent messengers to take David, Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter, says, He's sick. I mean, look at, look at that head. Clearly he's not doing well. His head looks like lambskin. Well, goatskin. So Saul sent the messengers. Of course, we can talk about you know, Esau and all that in the comparison, but just the same. So Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him back, uh, bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. So much for taking the sick day. They're like, just grab the bed with him on it and kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image on the bed. So can you imagine these four guys, or however many, are grabbing the bed, and somewhere in all of it, like this thing rolls off the bed and goes, Kadonk! And it's like a big chunk of wood or something. And they're like, and you could, you know, what would you do if you're Michalah? You're like, see, I told you he was sick. Look at how bad he looks. I mean, what do you say in a moment like that? And she's got to think fast. Because this is a rough moment, as you might imagine. So when the messengers had come in, there was the image on the bed, the cover of goat's hair for his head. And Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? You realize what she does. She pulls the victim card. She says, hey, he was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. I had to let him go. David fled and escaped. Now, hear me on this, because this is a really good example for us in this situation. I don't know how bad your life can get or has gotten. Where you really feel like you just got to get away. But I got to tell you, David in this point, I remind you, he is innocent. He has done nothing to deserve Saul's wrath. Can we agree on that? He has not in any way mistreated Saul or his family. He's not mistreated Israel. To be honest, he's been obedient to God. And in his obedience to God, he is now a wanted man. What do you do at a moment like that when you're seeking to be obedient, but you're surrounded with people who are full of lies and hatred and full of venom? I'll tell you the place I don't want to go in a moment like that is a place of fellowship. I don't want to go a place where I see other Christians. And so not like I want to be with unbelievers either. I'd rather just sit in a cave by myself somewhere. But David shows me a really good example here. You know what David does? He flees and he heads to Samuel. Now here's the thing. Everyone's got to have a Samuel like this in their life somewhere. Now for some of you, prayerfully, that's your mom or dad. For some of you, prayerfully, it's someone that's a pastor or someone that's helped disciple you. But someone so that when things get crazy, someone's going to be in your life to keep you from making the stupid decision you want to make at a moment like that, but you can't. And you know, that's why we don't want to go there. Because we know if we go there, they're going to tell us not to. So they're going to say, no, don't go get smashed. No, don't go get hammered. No, don't go out and find someone else. No, don't go out there looking for a fight. No, don't just go and chase after this thing. You know that this is a sin. And in a moment like that, we are so confused. We really want to embrace. Now, please hear me. When we're full of confusion, the easiest thing to do is embrace an accusation. Because that's what the enemy does, is he's an accuser. That's what his name means. And so we can accuse God, we can accuse other people, we can accuse ourselves. but it doesn't matter who you accuse, you will use that accuse, that, that accusation as a diving board to do something stupid. Imagine what David could do at this moment. I mean, David's killed his tens of thousands, Saul's killed his thousands. What that tells me is it appears to me that David's a better warrior than Saul is. So in hand-to-hand combat, I'm kind of guessing, even though Saul's a little bigger, David's already taken down Goliath. I imagine Saul's no threat. 
But David's not going to do that. David's not going to go and get wasted. And David could. David's not going to go out on some binge feeling he has a right to because things aren't going his way. What David does is he runs to someone that is mature, the person, to be honest, who confirmed his calling. And could you imagine that conversation? Sitting with Samuel. I mean, put yourself in that situation for just a moment. Sit with David as he sits. He's, he's been crying or freaking out. He's lost sleep. He has fled for his life now. And he sits with Samuel and he goes, what is up? How does this work? I mean, you anointed me. I didn't ask you to anoint me. You put a calling on my life. And I didn't ask for that. And, and now, what's this? So it says in verse 18 that Saul fled and escaped and he went to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah, I remind you, it was Samuel's home. And it was told him all that Saul had done to him. So he's, you're aware of what Saul's doing, right? And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naot. Now Naot, for what it's worth, it's kind of unique to this text. A couple of these places will be. Now Naot, by the way, for it means habitations. And it is a place where the prophets are. Now, it seems to me like Samuel has sort of a school for prophets. And it's a place, if you will, sort of like the prophets hang out. And so it's the officers club for prophets. And there David is brought in. And I remind you, in the eyes of everyone else, what do we know David as? We know David as the giant slayer. We know David as the warrior who has taken down tens of thousands because of a song that we've been hearing the women sing. We don't know David as the king. And David gets brought into this place. Now, I remind you, this is a place. Now, would you feel like this was a place of comfort? Because at a moment where everything is so confusing, you've got a bunch of mouthpieces of God that are surrounding you. In a moment like this, you're like, you guys, I need to not get self-consumed at a moment like this. Because it would be so easy to be self-consumed at a moment like this. What's sad is David's not going to be able to stay there long. But take note. It says then in verse 19, Saul was told. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is Naot, is at Naot, and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as their leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So David is in a place where he's surrounded by fellowship. People who have surrendered to God, who are God's mouthpieces. David, instead of doing, it's a one place, David can't do something stupid. And, and with that then, a bunch of guys come to get him. They're sent from Saul. And you'd think, oh, whatever, how are a bunch of prophets going to protect me? I mean, you don't necessarily think prophets are your greatest warriors, unless they're going to be like, God do something really cool. But, but in all of that, understand they come. And what happens is the Spirit of God comes upon these guys that come to arrest David. And they start to prophesy. Now let me ask you, what do you think they said? I remind you, prophecy isn't telling the future. Prophesying is speaking the words of God. Now, that can be futuristic, but it doesn't have to be. Most of the time when you see a prophet speak, their message is actually to God's people telling them to repent. It's like, thus says the Lord. And I wonder if the guys that came could hear God say or would speak God's words to say, Saul, step off the throne. It's not yours anymore. I kind of get a clue here that it may actually be God's message to these people. So what happens in verse 21? Saul sends another group of messengers, and the same thing happens. They prophesy likewise. Then Saul sends messengers a third time, and they prophesy also. Saul is losing all of his men. Now, we don't, by the way, do you know what's interesting is notice in these verses, we don't read that the guys went back. If you went and you went to arrest David and then the spirit comes upon you and you're like, Saul, step off the throne. David's the rightful king. This isn't yours anymore. Would you go back to Saul? Then another group comes and goes, oh, no, they're here to arrest us and David. And they do the same thing in the third group. And then in verse 22, it says, and then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sehu. By the way, that means watchtower. And it's exclusive to this verse. It's the only time we read the word Sehu in Scripture. And so he asked them, he said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they're at Naot and Ramah. So he went to Naot and Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naot and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes, 
prophesied before Saul in like manner, and lay down naked all that, all that day and all that night. And people therefore said, Saul among the prophets. Now, don't miss this. Why in the world would Saul get naked? It's a strange thought. Now, I know I'm not trying to create an image. Notice none of the other guys did that. It was like these guys came to arrest David. It isn't like, you know, the spirit of nakedness comes upon them. and like, we're going to arrest David. And then like, whoa, man, it sure is hot. Hey, you know, why Saul? Because what is Saul removing when he's removing his clothes? He's removing his kingly clothes. There's the difference. And imagine, if you will, guys come to arrest David and they say, Saul, this isn't your throne anymore. Step off the throne. You're not king. Then the next group comes. Saul, this isn't your throne anymore. Step it off. This isn't your throne anymore. Give it to the rightful king. Then the next group comes. Saul, this isn't your throne. Step off the throne. Give it to the rightful king. Then Saul shows up. And imagine him saying, Saul, this isn't your throne anymore. Step step off. Give it to the rightful king. Could you see the spirit of God's going? You know what? These clothes are not yours anymore, Saul. You are not a king anymore. You're not the person that's supposed to be in control. This isn't your place anymore. Can I say, if you've given your life to Christ, it's not your place anymore. And you know what? I love to think it's my place. The problem is, is that I just can't fix everything in front of me. And I want to. And I watch people go mental and people do crazy things. And and, and there's hurt and there's lies and there's deceit. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And you want to just be able to step into it and, and just throw some kind of strange bomb that makes everything better, but it just doesn't happen. And all you can do at a moment like that is throw up your hands and say, God, i got to trust you because I feel like every time I stick my hand in this, it gets worse. You ever be there? Why wouldn't you want to run in a moment like that? Well, please hear me. In a moment like this, the chapter ends now with even Saul laying naked before everyone. Now, you're aware of the fact as well that for a person to get naked, contrary to our culture, is actually an act of shaming. I mean, today, I think it's the opposite. So hear me now as we move through chapter 20. David fled. Saul's naked. Three armies have come, or three troops have come to arrest them. They've all prophesied. Saul and his crew have now come and prophesied. David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, now he's going to, the, to his best friend, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now it appears as if Jonathan's quite surprised by this. Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. In other words, Jonathan's like, this can't be... David, you're, you're, you're going paranoid, man. Clearly, that's not the case. David says, listen, David took an oath again, and he said, certainly your father knows that I've found favor in your eyes. And he has said, don't let Jonathan know this thing, because he'll be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David's like, I'm really sincere here. Your dad's not telling you, because he knows your response. He knows that how good of friends we are. Why would he tell you? Jonathan says to David, verse 4, Whatever you yourself desire, I'll do it for you. David says to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in a field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, and they then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for, his, for all the family. And if he says thus, it's well, well, then your servant will be safe. But if he gets really angry, very angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? Now, understand what he's saying is, look it. If your dad really wants me dead and he knows I'm coming to the table, and I'm not there, he's going to be really angry because he wants me dead. But if he really does care and this isn't about that and I don't show up, he would be more concerned. He'd be like, oh, wow, that's really sad. But if he wants you dead, he wants you there so he can kill you. He goes, this is just a test. You know, we'll find out whether I'm actually paranoid or whether this is really true, Jonathan. But you're going to have to do this for me. Will you do it for me, please? I'm not going to be there. Let's face it. If he does want to kill me, I don't want to be there. 
So I'm not going to be there. And I want you to just tell me. Feel it out. Feel your dad out one more time. Jonathan said to David, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? Oh, I should say this. Verse 9, Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For I, if I knew that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, wouldn't I tell you? So David says, Well, how are we going to figure this out? How are you going to tell me if your dad knows you're around? Verse 11, Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there's good toward David, I sh- and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and so much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, well, then I'll report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. That's past tense you're aware of. And you shall not show only me kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my father's house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He goes, look, we've been in a covenant. Now we see what the covenant is. There's no romantic marriage between two guys here. Jonathan knows that David's his father's replacement. He goes, you know, David, when you take the throne, the common thing to do is to kill all of Saul's family, the last guy's family, so that no one can rise up against you. Can you get in a covenant with me that you won't do that? And what's clear here is that David said, of course. Why would I kill you, Jonathan? So Jonathan made a covenant at the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan caused David to vow, because he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place in which you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Ezel, by the way, means departure. It's appropriate. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, some young guy, saying, go find the arrows. Now, imagine this as a king or as a prince. This is one of your things you get to do. You just get to shoot arrows and then tell some guy, go find my arrows. If I expressly say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, come here and uh, get them and come, then as the Lord lives, there's safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the manner in which you have spoken, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. Now, this is kind of a, this is, this is their little spy talk. This is their code. I'm going to shoot some arrows. I'm going to send a kid out. And I'm going to say, hey, they're closer. Come close to me and get those arrows. What he's saying to David is, come close. You're safe. But if he's going, oh, no, no, they're beyond you. Keep going. Go farther away to get them. He's telling David, go farther away. You're not safe. But that way, I mean, I mean imagine the only person that's going to know is you and me. And this poor kid is going to just be confused. He's going to be looking for the arrows. And I'm going to be like, oh. And I'm going to be, anyways, you get the idea. So David hid in the field, verse 24. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Another king sat at his seat as at the other times on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose. And it says, And Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, surely, or something has happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he's unclean. Isn't it interesting? You'll find this a lot. That when a person's running from God, they start to think everybody else is a sinner. And Saul is looking. He's like, oh, there's a seat missing. Clearly he's unclean so he can't join me for the meal hey you know you've probably heard it said that if you live the thieves life you always think everyone wants to steal from you because the kind of life you live is the kind of life you just think the world is around you we tend to universalize you've probably heard this story it's an old indian proverb about two kids one kid had candy and one kid had marbles and what happened is the two of them decided what they really wanted was each other's things so what happened is, they said, I'll tell you what, tomorrow I'll give you all my marbles for all of your candy. So they went home that night, and the kid took all of his candy, put it in a bag, and then the other kid, with the marbles, took all the marbles, but he kept a few of them back that he really liked. And then they did the swap. And as they did the swap, 
the kid who had held back a few of the marbles now has the candy. And he laid out at night and goes, I wonder what candy he's kept from me. Meanwhile, the kid who gave all of his candy slept like a baby because he was totally fine. The whole point of it is, is that when we live that kind of compromised life, we just assume that's the world around us. The Bible says it this way. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure. Loose paraphrase, but that's the point. You live in a filthy mind and a filthy heart, you'll definitely see the world is filthy around you. You live a pure heart. Have you ever talked to somebody where everything you say turns into an innuendo? It is amazing. There's nothing you can say that somebody doesn't make it somehow perverse if they really want it to. I've just learned the only thing to do at that point is to walk away and not talk. And there are other people, like, you know, sometimes you say something innocently, and there are people around you that are kind, and they just kind of, well, that could have been taken wrong, but praise God, I know that's not what you intended, because they don't think that way. I really do love that. And we really do need to be more like that Saul here, because he's living in this place of uncleanness. He kind of looks and says, well, David must be unclean. Verse 27, it says, it happened on the second day, or the next day, second of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, now he's a little suspicious. Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission to me, of me, to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family as a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Now, here's the test. Verse 30 says, Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Boy, how is that for a nice insult? You're aware of the fact I think he kind of insulted mom more than you. Now, we have terms like that. You say, You son of a, you kind of get it here. It's you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse, notice he won't even call him David. You're probably where David means beloved. Why would he call him that? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him here to me, for he shall surely die. Now, understand what he's saying. What Saul has just confessed is Saul knows that David's the replacement. And he knows, hey, look it, if this guy's alive, Jonathan, you'll never be king. And what's clear is, is that Jonathan doesn't want to be king if it's not God's will. I love people like that. Jonathan answers his dad. Remember the last time he talked sense into him? So he tries it again. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and he said to him, well, why should he be killed? What has he done? And dad answers differently this time. Then Saul cast the spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. When your dad tries to kill you because you stand up for someone, chances are he's probably not happy with that person, you think? So it says then, Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. The torment of Saul's renegade heart has come at the expense of his son, not only his respect, but almost cost him his life. So it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and the little lad was with him. And he said to the lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. Now, I don't know about you, but you realize what he's saying here, right? He didn't say find the arrows which I shot. Now, which one of you wants to be the lad? Here's the deal. I want you to run, and I'm going to shoot some arrows. Find them. I'm a little nervous with that kind of particular, you know, setup. Because somehow in that agreement, basically, what if I find them, I don't know, in my spleen, Right? Okay, I'm going to shoot some arrows, but go ahead and run. I'm going to give you a head start. And the lad ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. I, I imagine that was probably to the piece of the, of the lad. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Isn't the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad. That means that Jonathan now is putting a great deal of emotion. He goes, make haste, hurry, don't delay. And then the other thing is, hurry up. 
up. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to Now understand, Jonathan's getting really emotional because his best friend is he's going to have to say goodbye and run for his life. And this poor guy that was like running to go find arrows, he's like, go get the arrows. He's like, okay, okay, boss, I'm just trying to find the arrows. You know, this is a rough day for the, for the lad. But the lad didn't know anything, verse 39. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad, which I imagine was peace to him, and said to him, go carry them into the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from his place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. This is an act of complete honor to the person in front of you. We see that happen often today in India. It still happens. And they kiss one another. This is not that kind of make-out thing. You get the idea here. This is a, this is a kiss of respect. You still get that in the Middle East to this day. And they wept together, but David more so. I want you to realize that Jonathan, with his best friend, they're in a place here where Jonathan looks, and he can't even just do the code. Jonathan's got to see his buddy one last time. And he realizes this is it. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, be between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. We end the chapter, beloved, in a place of heartbreak. I don't know if any of you have ever had to say goodbye to a best friend. I watched pretty much until my Christian years every best friend die in front of me. It's been a crazy life. And the hardest thing about saying goodbye into those situations is that you know you're saying goodbye for good. But to be honest, I think I'd rather have that than someone just turn flat out evil and, and, and make, become my enemy. Because I'd have to live with the reality that this person that I loved so much still exists in that state. But that's not Saul and Jonathan's. I'm sorry, that's not Jonathan and David's story. Jonathan and David's story is that Johnny has to go back to his dad who wants to kill his best friend. And he wants to kill his best friend because David took the calling of God upon his life. It's just that simple. And you know what? Look at Maybe you read this and you think, man, well, then who really wants the calling of God if this is what's going to happen? If people are going to get like this and they're going to get nasty and these kind of things are going to happen, who wants this? And then I look at someone like Saul, who becomes Paul. And he tells me something interesting when he starts talking about his qualifications to a group of people, the Corinthians, who were doubting his calling. And he talked about how they were the fruit of his ministry how they had come to know the Lord through the ministry that God had placed upon his life, how he had served them relentlessly, invested in them. And this wasn't just an individual. This was a whole church that had turned on Paul. I mean, he would say at the end of his life, you know what my defense, when he stood before the guy that could have him killed, that was Caesar. He said, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. And I wonder what that would be like as a guy who raised up pastors, Saul went from, or Paul went from place to place. He planted churches, raised up pastors, and then went to the next. These were his friends. These were his patriots. These were his comrades. And then somewhere in it, at the moment when he would need them the most, when he would stand before Caesar and need character witnesses, none of those guys were willing to stand with him. I think of the pastors we've had the chance in the last 27, 30 years to minister to where you've invested in and you love them. In some cases, you'd think they would drop anything if you were in that need. And some of you go, I just don't get it. And I I can imagine Paul being so shocked. And Paul was beat up. And every place he seemed he would go to, his life was in jeopardy. But when Paul starts to tell his story about these things that qualify him, he talks about visions. And he tells us that he knows this guy in the body, out of the body, I don't know how this works, but was brought to a place in heaven that was so amazing. He goes, you couldn't even put it into words. 
And it's arguable. So who's this guy that he knows? And then the next thing he says is, but so that I wouldn't get pumped up in pride because of what I've seen, God put a thorn in my flesh. So I kind of get the guy that he knew was him. And then I have to go back and text and go, well, where in the world could that have been? On Paul's first mission trip, Paul went through the middle of Turkey to the Lacaonian region, Derby and Lystra. And while he was there, he was stoned and left for dead. We don't read he was dead and we don't read he wasn't. We just read that he was stoned, dragged out of the city and assumed, presumed, or if you will, declared dead. And then we read the disciples who I would believe then to be brand new Christians who had just gotten saved because of Paul's ministry there, gathered around him, and he got up. Now, whether he was left for dead or not, if you stone a guy, that's a lot of broken bones. I mean, throwing rocks at anyone, that hurts. But when you throw rocks at someone to kill him, you're breaking stuff. And imagine a bunch of brand new Christians circling a guy that's covered in a pile of stones, bones broken. I mean, we're talking pieces of bones sticking out of skin. You know, those things where your arms kind of doing the 90 degree angle thing, you know, and you're praying, God, we really would love to see this guy come back. And he comes back. He's like, whoa, check it out. And he goes back in the city where they killed him or tried to. And I think about that moment and I realize what happened, because as we bring this to close, please hear me. Paul will then say, my light afflictions. This guy gets beat up. He gets left for dead. He gets stoned. The guy gets shipwrecked three times. The guy spent night and day in the deep. The guy has just known, I mean, he has just known what it's like to be hunted. He knows what it's like to get jacked. He knows what it's like to get gang jumped. And yet in all of it, he says, this is light affliction compared to the glory we're going to see. And if you miss that part, none of this makes sense. If this is all about something temporary and we just then we should be nice to people and hope they'd be nice to us. But somewhere in it, Paul got lifted up over all of this and God showed him all of this and he goes, Paul, this is what awaits you. Now hang in there because it won't be long, man. It won't be long. Hang in there because you're making a difference and I want you to make this difference. And if you're going to make this difference, stick to it, man. Stick to it. Soldier on. Because there are more people who need to hear about me. And there are more people I want to see come to know me. And I'm going to use you to do it. And if you're going to do that, soldier on. And you need to see that when it comes to there, none of this stuff is going to matter anymore. You won't be checking which bones are broken. You won't be checking to see who's going to chuck a rock at you. You won't be checking to see who gives you even a cross look. Because at a moment like that, all that's going to be left are the people that somehow have been affected because you let God use you. Beloved, please hear me as we go to prayer. This story of David, his life is flipped upside down. But yet, interestingly enough, of the 71 Psalms, we know that he wrote that, say, a Psalm of David. Of the 150, that's nearly half of them, 52 of the 71 Psalms were written while, Saul, well, I'm sorry, while David was under duress. That means the majority of David's albums came out at times of rough. That means in David's running, he wrote most of his material. And you'll find David in almost seems bipolar because he's freaking out and then he turns to God and then God's peace overcomes him. And then he's like, oh, I'm so victorious. But a moment he goes, like, I'm going to die. God, help. And you read it and you think, what's wrong with the guy? Well, actually, God just answered his prayer. He was freaking out. He's like, God, I don't get it. These guys wanted me dead. And everywhere I turn, and then he's like, oh, you've answered me. I am not going to be afraid, even if I'm surrounded by tens of thousands of men. Because you're with me. I'm okay. I'm okay. The situation hasn't changed on the outside. But everything has changed on the end. As we go to prayer, beloved, tonight here in this room, I don't know what your challenges are. I don't know what struggles, what heartaches, what disappointments, what regrets, what scars you bear, and what people you know you need to cut from, but you don't want to. But I do. But I do know this. If you forget that this is for eternity, you don't want to toss in the towel. But if God, even tonight, could remind you that the calling he's placed on your life is to change heaven, for the better. 
is to change this world around us for the moment, but to transform eternity by bringing more people into the kingdom of heaven that another voice would praise the king beside you, someone you claim to love. Would it be worth it when the dust settles and we cash in these, bod- these bodies that are already going the way of the earth? Because if you forget that, you will never want to take your stand and you will stop soldiering like you should. In two chapters we've seen tonight, David's life has been rough because an earthly king with an earthly heart wants to take care of David's earthly body and he wants to wipe it out. But David's spirit craves God's heart and there's nothing he can do about that. And because of that, David has already won. Saul just can't see it. And tonight, I want to pray that God come in on a charger and A-bomb our doubt and A-bomb our complacency and come into this place and rattle like an earthquake our hearts to a place where we say, God, eternity. I'm an agent of eternity. Now let me try and make me an agent of change for that eternity. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't to make us nice. He didn't come to heal because that's temporary. He didn't come to teach. That's temporary. Though he did teach and he did heal. But what he did do is he came to save and that's eternal. Because when God does something, he does it for keeps because he plays for eternity. And we represent him. When he died on that cross and rose again, the point of raising again is to show us that this world is all going to die, but Jesus shows us there's life beyond that. He's completely and absolutely the perfect ambassador for eternity. And we now are enlisted as soldiers under his care. Beloved, there's a world out there that may not want to hear, but they need to. And if one person says yes and 99 say no, would it be worth it? Because that person's going to stand next to you someday and say thank you. Pray with me, would you? God, I thank you so much for this text. And I thank you for what you've done here, even in these chapters. And I pray right now, God, please, for every challenge we face, every disappointment, every heartbreak, every moment of betrayal where we stare in the eyes of someone we thought was a friend but they've turned coat. People that we've sought to be reconciled with but they're so busy running from you that we really can't be reconciled like we'd like to because the fundament of us, the foundation of us is you. And we cannot have great fellowship with someone who has declared war on the very core of our being. So God, I pray tonight that you lift us beyond all that. The hurt that feels like it'll be forever. The confusion that seems like it'll never end. The storms in our life that seem like they're permanent. And yet, God, take us beyond all of that. And give us again a glimpse of eternity. Where we realize that the enemy would love for us to sideline ourselves because sometimes the storm is there only to show to greater degree that we belong to you. And in that moment, Lord, we choose to choose to say yes to you. Believing that Jesus died for us on the cross, so he's purchased us eternally and rose again to give us a new life that represents eternity. God, I pray that we would live with a mind of eternity and in doing so, God, that these temporary light afflictions, as Paul would say, would really be seen as such in comparison for the excellence of the glory that will be revealed when we stand before you at your throne. For Paul to say that he counts all things here but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of you, Jesus. Counting it rubbish because quite simply to live is Christ and to die is gain so I pray that you open our eyes to eternity 
and our ears to your voice and cause us tonight to soldier on. Because you'll never leave us nor forsake us and you call us as faithful and you'll do it. So Lord, here we are, we're yours. As you're our Lord, we are your servants. As you are our commander, we are at your deploying this to offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness. When the bugle is blown, we are in attention on the line and say, Lord, send us where you wish to impact eternity. Put things back in their proportion where they need to be, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.